Welcome to the Imperfectly Perfect Campaign, sharing real-life stories from real people to unite them in global change for the face of mental health. We will also reduce the stigma, creating communication, healing, and awareness to save lives and inspire. Join us weekly as we talk to some of the highly acclaimed faces, influencers, experts, and others who have been through extreme adversity. All right, guys, so welcome to another episode of the highly acclaimed Imperfectly Perfect podcast. Today, we've got an incredible lady from the US coming on. So like I do every single week, I will run down through a bio, then get straight into the uh, hard-hitting questions. And I'm excited today because this lady, we actually met through an application clubhouse. Everybody's meeting on this application at the moment, which is amazing. And I heard your story and I knew I had to reach out. So without further ado, from bringing compelling characters to life on screen as an actor, calling the shots behind the scenes as a director and producer, lending her thoughts and opinions to the podcast Airwaves, and even penning her debut literary work, Brianne Davis has immersed in the entertainment industry as a powerhouse female creative. In film and television, Brianne most recently starred in the History Channel 6, the ambiguous drama followed Navy SEAL Team 6, whose mission to eliminate a Taliban leader in Afghanistan goes awry when they uncover a US citizen working as a jihadist fighter with the terrorists. Brianne was a scene stealer as Lena, a teacher and a wife of lead SEAL Team 6 commander Joe Graves. Additional TV credits include Netflix, Fox's Lucifer, Hulu's Casual, Fox's Rosewood, HBO's True Blood and CBS The Mentalist. First big break in the business came with a speaking role in the film Remember the Titans. Opposite Denzel Washington, Hayden Panisheri, Ryan Gosling and Kate Bosworth. Wow. From there, Brianne went on to booking a role on the hit television shows Dawson's Creek and once graduated from high school, she made the decision to move to Los Angeles to pursue her acting career. Her lead role came in 2005 with a blockbuster hit, Jawhead, where she starred opposite Jake Gyllenhaal. She also starred in the horror film Prom Night alongside Britney Snow, Kellen Lux and Idris Elba. Thriving behind the camera as much as in front, under a production company, Give and Take Productions, Brianne has produced three films while also directing The Night Visit 2, Heather's Story and Deadly Signal. With over a decade of recovery as a sex and love addict, Brianne is the host of the popular mental health podcast, Secret Life. The podcast launched in August 2020 and features inspiring true confessions from an eclectic group of guests unpacking a plethora of taboo topics. Brianne's latest venture in the Secret Life brand is a debut novel, novel Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, which released on February 12th, 2021, and instantly hit the bestsellers list. Wow, what a bio, what a career you've had. Welcome to the show. That makes me sound a lot cooler than I actually am. Like, I'm like, I sound pretty cool, but I'm not. Like, I'm not that cool. Absolutely. Love it though. And why I was excited about when obviously I heard you on Clubhouse and you started sharing your story and your vulnerability, I was like, I need to look more into this. Because the thing about the campaign and about me is I take my hat off to anybody that's that's got huge accolades, who's had an incredible career. But I also know there's also a story behind a lot of it. And it takes a lot to get where you are. And a good friend who came through the campaign, Justin Garini, he once said, and he, he said he was one day sitting down with Lionel Richie at dinner. And he said, like you do. And uh, he basically yeah. said, Fame won't change the person you are. It will amplify. So if you're not a very nice person, it will amplify it. But if you are, you will use your platform for good to make a difference. And that's exactly what you are doing. So I just want to say thank you for what you're doing. And one of the things I just want to touch base on and ask you is your goal is to bring awareness to the mental health, addiction, and all the shame we as humans keep a secret. 
which are kind of synergetic to what I do. So tell us all about it, about your career. Let's start from the beginning. Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my goal is to like throw open the doors to this deadly disease of sex and love addiction and how it's affecting society so much right now. And that there's nothing wrong with us at the core. It's what we put on top of it, the masks we wear, the perfectionism like like your campaign is. And it's like, I was just sick and tired of trying to fill that dark hole inside of me with outside things to and my ego and narcissism tendencies. I just was out of control and I just couldn't, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I, you know, turned my life around a decade ago. Wow. So long ago. <laughs> so going that, you, you've had so many highlights. And one of the things with the campaign is like uncovering highlight reels behind the scenes. First of all, with a career and building it and reading that, that amazing bio of yours, what got you into that industry and how, I suppose, did you navigate being in the spotlight when everything's on top, publicity, paparazzi, all that, and then at the same time, being so open and vulnerable, going through it and keeping quiet at the beginning? Yeah, it was hard. I mean, getting into this career, my therapist first, I have to say my therapist said I picked the worst career for my addiction. Like the worst, I might as well just like, because it's constant rejection. It's not feeling good enough. It's somebody saying if you, you're yes or you're no. And she said that no matter how much success I get, I'm always going to be wanting the next thing. I'm always going to be wanting more. And I call it the disease of more. We always want more. And I have this insatiable hole ever since I was really young where I'm like more, 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 more candy, more cartoons, more attention, more love for my parents, just always more. And it started so young. And I remember I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wasn't like wanting to be an actor when I grew up. I didn't have, I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to have kids. I was definitely not the typical Southern girl. I was raised in Atlanta, Georgia and I was shy and I was dyslexic and I had a learning disability. I have ADHD. So I always felt in everywhere I was that something was just wrong with me or I was just missing that gene that Everybody else looked okay and they were doing good. And inside I was like, I don't feel like I fit in. I never felt like I fit in anywhere. And yeah, I remember watching the movie Romeo and Juliet when I was six years old. And it was like this moment for me. I remember seeing Michael White's butt and I was like, ooh, that's a nice butt. Like it was the perfect tushy (laughs) at six years old. And then I remember at the end of the movie, which now I know it's, they only knew each other for two days. But when I was little, I didn't know that, but that each person was willing to die for each other. Like they were willing to drink some poison and stab themselves because they couldn't be together and their love was a secret. And there was this drama and passion. So my young brain attached that early. That's what a real romance looks like. That's what real love looks like. Somebody has to be willing to die for the other person. And so I had this warped sense of what romance looked like. And none of the movies talked about paying the bills or taking out trash or there wasn't like drama fighting with my parents. Like my parents, I never saw them 
be kind to each other. I never saw them hold hands, sleep in the same bedroom. They didn't even sleep in the same bedroom. So I didn't have a healthy marriage modeled for me. So I was obsessed with movies and television and I was a latchkey kid. And then my real life was they were fighting and, you know, I found masturbation very early. So that's how I soothed myself and all that stuff. So it was just a combination of like <laughs> an addict ready to like go into fantasy. And I became a fantasy addict very young, very, very young. And I was always acting out scenes. And it just, when I found acting, I was like, oh my God, I can do this for a living. I can wear different clothes, look different in every and become a different character. So it was like the perfect for me because I didn't have to be my real self. I was just putting a mask on top of a mask on top of a mask on top of a mask. That was the long answer to your question. <laughs> no, I love it though because it gives you a back, back story. And that's, I, I love listening to people's stories. And then obviously when you got to the height of fame, when you did your debut and, and obviously then a lot happens and what we don't see behind the scenes, it's like you've got, everything on. I mean, through this campaign, I've never been in the industry, but I've got friends in the industry and now I've learned from, from you guys. And I'm going, wow, people don't see the reality. They see the highlight reel. So all that pressure yeah. up, as you say, rejection, then you've got this form of addiction, I suppose. How was you trying to keep it? Or was you openly speaking about it at the time? Or was you? No, mm -mm. no, 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 no. I didn't. First of all, you know, when I got Jarhead and then I have a picture of me on the red carpet on prom night. And that was like, everything was going great in my career. And I was working, I was a working actor. I've been a working actor for 20 years, you know? And so I was like my ego and I was like, I did this when in turn, like, I really didn't do, I show up and did my work, but it was all about like, oh, I made this happen. So when then I wouldn't get a job, I would plummet like my self-esteem would plummet. So I was always on this roller coaster, like I'm great, I'm less than, I'm great, I'm less than. And then comparing, despairing to outside people, like looking at their highlight reel and comparing it to mine and like everything looked great for them, even though I didn't know what was really going on. But there's this picture of me in this red dress on the red carpet. And it was like, the I was at the bottom, the lowest of the low. I'm sitting there signing autographs and my world around me was about to just blow up. It was this moment of everything looks beautiful and perfect on the outside and inside. I'm like dying, like, like everything is dying in me. And that's what happened. I started to have to pretty much kill myself to get to my real self. I call it the addict self in my book. I say the addict self and the real me. And I went through that process while working. It was pure torture. I mean, honestly, I was willing to give up to my career for my sobriety. I was saying, you know, I kept saying to my God, like, if I'm not supposed to do this to get healthy, then take it away, take it away. Because the pain and the withdrawal of sex and love addiction is... I wouldn't wish it on anybody, honestly. I, oh, this guy came in at six months and he said, I can quit heroin, but I can't quit her. Like heroin withdrawal was easier than withdrawal from a person. That to me is like, nobody talks about how when you get broken up with the pain that we go through. And instead of 
I'm an addict, so I don't want to feel pain. I'll like go on the phone and text somebody else or swipe left, swipe right, you know, go on Instagram, go on TikTok, anything so I don't have to feel my feelings. And that's what I was doing in 2008. I was doing everything I could not to feel my feelings. I was flirting outside of my committed relationship who I lived with my boyfriend at the time. I was intriguing, which is kind of a, a step up from flirting where you're being a little bit more inappropriate, <laughs> you know, you're not exactly cheating, but you're pretty close to it. Um, and I was using all my guy friends. I just was, I felt like I was running around getting anybody to film me. Like, give me your energy, flirt with me, coffee guy, flirt with me. Like I need this energy because I'm so depleted on the inside. And that's what I was doing for 20 something years since I was a little, little girl. But I think it's so vital to have these hard conversations. And I love yeah. that you're uncovering it with your podcast and your book, which we'll touch upon. But why I think it's so vital is because as humans, we are conditioned to judge whether something's good or bad. We mm -hmm. need to be more mindful because we, we would see a highlight reel of you on that red carpet. And in, in the past, I've had people go, but why celebrities? And I'm like, my campaign's not just celebrities, there's corporate leaders, there's people that we look up, we aspire to be, our kids aspire to be and think a highlight reel is everything. Yeah. You're clearly just stated and a lot more people on the campaign have stated, I was probably going through one of my worst stages at the height of my career. So yeah. when you was going through that, did you initially start penning? Like your book has, has recently been released and everything, but that comes from a lot of what you've gone through. Was you yeah. writing down your thoughts or journaling? Because people say that often helps. Was you at the time? I was. I hate journaling. <laughs> like, yeah, I was like, write down your feelings. And I'm like, I don't want to write down my feelings. Like I was a stubborn addict. I, but here's the thing. The moment I surrendered, and did, I started doing, you know, 12 steps works for me, but I started doing the 12 steps. That was the healing, the writing it down, the analyzing, the going through, you know, where we are powerless, we have to turn it over where I've done wrong. I mean, my, on if my four step, which if anybody out there knows the four step, you write down the people, you know, that have done you wrong, that you have resentments to. And my resentment list was 176 people. Like, I'm not joking. I said, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to surrender to this program that I see this guy, and I talk about it in the, in the second to third chapter, I see this guy, when I first walked into my first meeting, that was so different for me. He was like a celebrity, and he, was, he had this presence. Like, he was saying, my girlfriend can pick up my phone, and there's nothing bad on it. I, you know, don't want to cheat. I don't want to look outside of myself. And I was looking at him going, we are so different, but we're the same. Like complete opposites. And I said, I want what he has. And I, so I surrendered that first meeting I went to in deep in the valley in Los Angeles at a church at 7.30 at night, like the place you don't want to go. Like you're sitting in those uncomfortable plastic blue chairs with 30 people sitting around in a circle, everybody's like talking and happy and you want to die pretty much. And when they, everybody started talking, I had that moment like, oh my God, I'm not broken. 
I like something, I always felt broken and alone. And I'm like, I'm not broken or alone. I just didn't get the tools. I didn't get the tools for healthy relationships with my parents, with my friends and with romance. So it wasn't just like, it affected every area of my life. So doing that writing, doing my resentment list, going through looking at what was done to me, but what I did back, that was the big key, what I did back and the patterns I played with every single person in my life. I think I got to like 67, <laughs> the 67th person. And I threw the book against the wall while I was reading it to my sponsor. And I was like, I'm just repeating myself. I got so angry. I was like screaming. I'm just repeating myself. And she like looked at me and she's like, grow up and pick up your book and read. <laughs> She's like, that's the point. The point is you've been doing the same thing with everybody. It's, you could put a bag over their head. It didn't matter who they are. It was what they mirrored to me. And I was acting out the same. So that writing, then going into my character defects, and I have 22 major character defects. And we're talking like jealousy, envy, a liar, a thief, a cheater, um, you know, name it. I probably have it. Impatient judgmental, gossipy, like you can just go down the list and doing that work and then doing the work of where I did people wrong was the key to changing. So that's how I journaled. I did it through the step work, but yes, journaling helps a lot. There was this one journal I had though. My, she said, I want you to like tell God what you really think of him, like scream at him. So I was like, if you got like going off on the journal, like a crazy person, but you have to get it out. You can't hold it anymore. And I think that's what journaling does. It gets it out of you because what happens is it's toxic. It's in your body. And I couldn't walk around with that toxicity anymore. Or I was going to either kill somebody was going to kill me. I was going to commit suicide. I didn't want to commit suicide, but I definitely had a moment where I was like, I don't want to be on this planet anymore. It's too hard. I'm too sensitive. Like this, it, everything affects me too much. Mm -hmm. And I had this one moment I was, I haven't talked about this, but I had this one moment where I was driving down the highway and I was listening to this song and I thought to myself, what if I just veer and just go into the wall? Like there's that one thought because I was in so much pain and luckily I didn't and it just was fleeting, but yeah, it, it got, it, it can get bad when you do not get out the stuff you've been burying deep your entire life and dealing with. And you touched upon something that first of all, I will say, um, if you've not read the, uh, the pathway of surrender, it's an amazing book. Oh no. When you touched on surrender, then it's like my personal journey as well. You literally do have to surrender and it sounds like you've stepped into your truth and that's why everything's flourishing. But when you touched upon um, the, the toxicity, it's kind of, you go through this thing and there's people on the outskirts sometimes talking about be positive and change your mindset, change your thoughts. But like you said there, you have to get that frustration out. As the human emotion, there is toxic positivity. And when people used to say that, just change your mindset. It ain't as easy. You need to go through no. the hit rock bottom no. times. I actually think that's a dangerous saying, honestly. I do. I think we as humans don't want to feel feelings. Most of us don't. Even addicts and normies is what I, we call non-addicts. But yeah. we all just want to be happy, joyous, free, you know, like 
that's the human we want to, but that's not real life. And you don't, you have to know how to feel your feelings and feelings are meant to be felt. That's what people forget. If you're having a bad day, it's okay to have a bad day, to cry it out, to do some journaling, to talk to a therapist. Because what happens if you do that positivity, toxic positivity, you are literally stuffing down your, your feelings. And my therapist said, you have to imagine this trash can in your soul, right? Like just, and you're just shoving it down with shopping or eating or another guy or a DM or blah, 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 put, fill in the blank. We, I feel like everybody has some sort of ism, you know, porn, you know, video games is a huge one people have a problem with right now. And imagine that it's going to explode sooner or later and, and people get disease aggression, violent, all that is because feelings aren't being felt. And the world is telling us to always be positive and that is not realistic. We have feelings. So what happens is it either explodes or you dig in, you dig deep, you feel those feelings. And that's what withdrawal is from sex and love addiction. It's the same as drugs and alcohol withdrawal. It's brutal. I cried every day for nine months. I mean, cried, not just like a little tear, like cried and crawling at the carpet because my therapist explained to me that you have to dig through all your shit to get down to the gold. And the gold is your true self, your self-worth, your self-love. And that is what the program is about, finding your self-love getting the tools to deal with feelings, getting the tools to live in this world where you have no power and control over everything. And I thought in my mind, I could have power and control over people. I was addicted to people, friends, girlfriends, you know, my parents, I was addicted to people and that was my bottle and I had to put it down. And my boyfriend and I, you know, he was willing to walk away from me. He wasn't allowed to fix me. He wasn't allowed to make me feel better, you know, rub my back if I was crying. And it was really difficult that first year. And I didn't tell anybody at all what I was going through, you know, just my close, close friends and my family, but, but they didn't understand what I was even going through. So it didn't even matter because most of them have different issues than me. Wow. Can you remember then, can you take us back to, so one of the things with the, with the podcast, and we're going to touch base on yours because I want to read something from yours, which I found amazing. Um, but can you remember from all the time that you tried to hide it and shield it away? And obviously then keeping this stigma going, why people don't speak. Can you remember the day that you finally broke your silence and what did it feel like? Because what I want to get across to people is, it's not such a big thing that we build up in our mind when we actually share our story. Can you remember that time and how you, you felt? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I was going to go to my grave being a sex and love addict. Listen, I'm very, very active in my community. I've spoken all over the world. I've had sponsees all over the world. I've you know done 45-minute shares, been at the – so I'm pretty active. I'm an old-timer with 11 years of sobriety and sex and love addiction because it's really hard to get time. It's hard because we need people in our lives, and so a lot of people don't stick around, and I'm a lifer is what I said. But when I hit a decade, when I got that, you get like the gold chips with 10 years on it. When I got that chip, something happened that day. 
And I was like, had this feeling and I went to a meeting and I looked around and it was like younger and younger and younger generations were coming in, like 20 year olds, 21 year olds. And if you're listening out there, like if you're 18 and younger, there's other groups for you. It's, you know, 18 and older. So I just want to make that clear. And, and I just saw they're so disconnected. They're in so much pain. They have trouble with intimacy, you know the younger generation is really struggling and it's almost an epidemic they say and i just kept seeing it and seeing it um and i had this feeling like i have to be of service bigger i have to like voice because it kept being men getting caught cheating and then saying they're sex addicts as excuses is what society says and i just got very tired of that narrative very very tired and i was like but that's not true 50% are women you know, and men have problems with fantasy and relationships. They are love addicts just as much as women are. And women are sex addicts just as much as men are. And listen, I've never had a one night stand. I haven't had a ton of sexual partners. You can be a sex addict and still those are those criteria. So I was just sick of the black and white. And it's like, no, it's a very great disease. You could be addicted to an unavailable person that you keep going back to a bad relationship. You could be addicted to cheating. You could be addicted to porn. You could be addicted to masturbation. But then on the other side, you cannot have sex at all and be sexually anorexic. So there's all these colors of this disease. And I got this chance to write an article for HuffPost and I came out and it came out and the morning of I'm not kidding. I almost had a panic attack. I was like, what did I do? Did I mess up my career? Like, what am I doing? Why this article? Like, I don't And I started panicking and the article came out and two hours later, it hit me. It was like, nothing happened. The world did not stop. You are not that big on the planet. Like, chill out, Brienne. relax. Nothing happened. And what actually happened is the first month it was out, it got 2 million hits. I got tons of people all over the world reaching out to me saying, oh my God, I've done that. Oh my God, my partner's done that. My mom, my dad, I grew up like that, blah, blah, blah. Like go down the list. And I was like, oh, this is what my purpose is. Not to be a working actor, which I love that as my job and directing and producing, but it's to be of service and to help people heal. And if I can help one person, one person get out of the pattern of self-abuse and then abusing other people, that's where it got me. I said, if I can help that one person, the ripple effect, the ripple effect that, because I know the ripple effect damage and cheating and doing all the bad stuff and acting out selfishly, I've seen the ripple of how bad it's hurt people. But when I see how it helps families heal and helps generations after generations, that to me was worth it. And I was like, okay, this is got whatever you planned, God. And then it just kept, God just kept being like, here you are, be of service again. Here you are, here you are, here you are. It's not about you. It's not about you. And I was like, you're right. It's not about me. I'm here on this planet to be of service to other people and to show that you can have this disease and you can get out of the cycle and the pattern and actually live a healthy, serenity, peaceful existence that's not based in drama, self-obsession, selfishness, getting your needs fixed. And that's why I'm here now is just to give a voice to the voiceless. Love it. I'm just, I'm just sat there listening and just, it's, it's that kind of like that stepping into your truth and your breakthrough when you actually realize and you go, 
we can go through this and we can learn life's lessons. And if we learn them to impart them on someone else and help them grow and not make the mistakes, especially the younger generation, I think it's all evolution, isn't it? We're trying to teach the next generation what we did so they don't have to go through it. So I think, I think what you're doing with your platform, as I said at the beginning, is amazing. And then obviously, everything that you journaled, where did the, the moment come where you decided to pen the actual book? And where did the podcast come from as well? Well, the book, I never wanted to write a book. <laughs> so let's just, get, let's just get everything straight. I never wanted to do a podcast. I never wanted to do a book. I was happy just being a working actor, you know, directing, you know, I producing, like I was just happy where I was. And what happened was, here's a twist, which I meant to mention is I married now. I have a kid and I didn't want those two things, but here's the thing. I'm with the same man I was 11 years ago. We've been together for 16 years. It's not like I went through the program and found my white knight soulmate you know, the perfect partner because we're all humans and we're all flawed. There's no, that's, there's no such thing. So I'm married now. And my husband, he was like, Hey, there's this writing course, 90 day writing course. You should take it. And I looked at him like he was crazy. Like what? Huh? I, I have ADHD. I have a learning disability. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm not interested in writing a book. Okay. And then he kept mentioning it like through the month, like he kept dropping a hint every week. And finally he looked at me and he said, listen, I think you should take it. If it's not that much money, if you don't like it, you can stop after a couple of days. No one has to know. Like I won't tell a soul. And I said, fine. Okay. I'll take it. And I started taking this class and I wrote the, the first draft in 45 days. And it was definitely something bigger than me because when I read my book now, I'm like, I wrote that. Like, I, I totally forget writing it, but it was like the universe or my higher power, God had a different plan and I didn't write it. I don't take credit for writing the book. I say it's somebody bigger than me is up there like saying, this is what you have to do. So in that process of rewriting, it was a memoir at first. And then all these you know, things were coming up for me and fantasies and other people's stories and dreams and I just let it be what it is. And it turned into this novel. It's a fiction. I made it a Roma Clef fiction because I say, you know, the lead character, I didn't know who she was anymore. She's me, but then she's other people too. And she had different experiences than me, but underneath it was the same, you know, feelings and, and thoughts and all that. So I was sitting there after writing one chapter and I was like, who is this person? And I was listening to Pandora and the song from the police, Roxanne came on, you know, you don't have to put on the red light. <laughs> Rock. And I was like, oh my God, it's her. That's what her name is. And I say, anybody could be Roxanne. Anybody can get in a toxic relationship and abusive and have, be cheated on or cheat on someone or be unfaithful and intriguing outside of their relationship. Anybody can be Roxanne. So I wrote the book as a self-help book, has these 10 rules that Roxanne lives by in the first year of her recovery of finding self-love. And, you know, it's based in Hollywood. So you get some of the Hollywood background and how difficult it is to be a working actor, not a celebrity, not a star. So I just let it be what it's going to be. And in doing that and doing those rewrites, I woke up at 3 a.m., and I had this thought like, oh my God, I should do a secret life, a podcast where 
I tell my secrets still and I allow other people to tell their secrets because after HuffPost, the last bit of shame just evaporated. And I was like, the thought, tell me your secret and I'll tell you mine. So every episode of the podcast, I try to reveal something about myself. First of all, so we can connect and and I allow my guests to to pretty much own the show. If they say something they want to take out, I take it out. If they want to get rid of the episode, I get rid of it. I've done it three times. You know, my good friend Olivia Munn recorded and she said, you know what, get rid of that episode. And I said, okay. And we re-recorded. So it's like, I'm protecting my guests. A lot of them are anonymous. Some of them are celebrities. We change all the names mostly. And I allow people to share their shame and secrets. And it's gotten really dark sometimes. You know, the first one, one of the first ones I was this girl, Kristen in New York, and she talked about, you know, shooting herself with a shotgun in the chest and that whole moment of why she did it, how it was afterwards, everything. And then I've had other difficult ones where using abortion as a form of birth control, men with eating disorder. I mean, it's literally every mental illness, addiction, every walk of life, every age group. And I'm really, really proud of it. It's probably one of the best things I've ever done is doing my podcast because it's not about me or my guest. It's about my listener. It's about the person that doesn't have a voice, like you said. Wow. I'm just so blown away with it because it's just, you even touched upon something there and uh, I'm kind of like, okay. So with what I've done, my backstory six, seven years ago, I actually health and fitness industry doing all that. I went down body dysmorphia and I got oh, to yeah. a place, a bad place. And it was funny because attesting to mine, one of the reasons for this podcast was because I wanted to show if that doesn't work for you, listen to someone else's story and see what they did. Because I know I went to see a psychologist at the time because it nearly broke my marriage up. I was spending like yeah. three or four hours in the mirror at a perceived floor. And it just shows you, as much as I, I went to uni and I did the theoretical side of the makeup and the body, what you tell yourself and what you see yourself in the mirror can be two totally different things. Oh, it's totally distorted. We have a total distorted image of ourselves in the mirror. And I have a guy talk about it, his vanity and being obsessed with his image in the mirror. I love that you're so open talking about that. Oh, when I when I, I kept it a secret for a long time and when I did and I saw somebody, this was one of the things like the psychologist I saw tried to pertain it to something when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And only a few years early, I living in Sydney, Australia, I was on the beach, I wasn't bothered. It was only I realized that after I stopped seeing that person because it didn't work for me, I saw someone else. Mine came to social media comparing myself. Oh, and then brutal, brutal. (laughs) I have a whole chapter about that. Just so you know, chapter eight, it's compare and despair. Find your self-worth. And I go through the, how bad social media is for Roxanne, AKA me, but yeah. it's, It's terrible, isn't it? But I found out it was social media. So I turned it off for a while. Turned it back on like just over two years ago because I, I do photography and took pictures um, of yeah. my wife wanted them and saw an old friend from the UK had passed away. So highlight reels, I hadn't seen a lead up. There was no illness, looked into it, it taken his life. So this mm. was one of the things with me. I wanted to disrupt corporate silence and social media within being in. And the more and more it's grown and everything, it's you need these hard conversations. And I think at times... I can only speak for myself, but maybe yourself too. When you're speaking to people, it doesn't matter who. It's like we're, 
we're essentially going through another therapy session. You learn from every single person you meet, don't you? Have you found that? Oh my God. Yeah. No, every time I do an interview, every, it feels afterwards, like we just went through battle together or it's a therapy session and we work some stuff out because there's something about connection between two people connection on such an authentic level. When, when we're both willing to like take down the veil and say, this is who I really am. This is what I've been through. This is what I feel about myself. I feel so alone and shame. And then the other person going, Oh my God, me too. I felt that way. It wasn't the same situation, but I felt that way. I felt not good enough. I felt addicted to compare and despair, greater than less than. That's what I think. I was addicted to greater, less than such a young age that I played that game out with every single person. And 99% of the time, I, I was a lesser than. So it was like, that for me, and that still is, social media is really hard for me still. I have to have boundaries with it. I don't swipe down and scroll. I don't get on stories. Uh, you know, when I post a video, I try not to go back on and like, they say it's just as addicting as gambling. They designed the app to feel like you're gambling in Vegas. You know how you have to, you have to push down? That's the same thing as the slot machines, the, the act. Yeah. I mean, they did it on purpose to make it addictive. And that when you get a like, it's the same endorphins as cocaine. It's like a jolt. It's a dopamine is released. And that is so scary for young kids. I couldn't imagine growing up with social media. I think I probably would have killed myself at uh, 13 years old. I even said though the other day um, with this new app, where obviously I came in and heard you speak. Yeah. I, I monitor my time on that. And I've seen, I can literally, in a morning, like it's morning in Sydney, I'll look on, I'll see certain people. I'll literally go on it for two minutes out of my afternoon if I'm, I'm bored and I'll just look, same people. I'll look on an evening, same people. And I heard the other day, they're monetizing it. I said, have we not learned from COVID? We miss interaction. We miss human experience. All of a sudden, an application has come. Now they're monetizing it. Now they're keeping you hooked. I'm like, no judgment, but at the end of the day, we need to break that. because what No, that's what happened with TikTok and Instagram. Yep. They monetized it. And when you do monetize it, and it's about how many likes you get, then the advertisers put in money. And it's all about advertising. We're literally just puppets. We're like, ding, ding, ding what do you want me to sell for you? Or what are you wanting to sell for me? So I'm your consumer. And it's so, it's so bad. And that's why I've been speaking out about that too. And how, how bad it's destroying our society and the fabrics of humanity right now. So I'm a hundred percent with you that it is toxic, toxic, but I'm still on it. Like, I, yeah, but I, I got off a year. I took off a year when I had my son and it honestly was the most peaceful year. And I had to get back on it for the book and the podcast and work. And, you know, I have to promote myself. So I really try to have boundaries, or, but it's hard. It's hard some days. Like you said, when you're bored, like, yeah. why aren't we allowed to just be bored? Why do we have to pick up our phone because we're bored? Like, we should be okay just being bored for 10 minutes, whatever, right? Well, you normally, you, have you learned, you touched upon it there, spirituality, something leading this and your purpose and that. With my journey, I was the least spiritual person. I say it all the time. But now I've yeah. noticed my purpose and things happening and all this. But it's those moments of silence that we actually need sometimes for clarity and how we're going to move forward. Because if we've got, 
constant, constant. And what I've seen through that application as well is mm-hmm. when I talk to people behind the scenes, a lot are going, I'm feeling less than because there's all these people that are seemingly making seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 figures. And I'm like, come on, if you're sat on an application 24 seven, you're not making that much money. Like, <laughs> so I'm trying to break it down for them. But even if they were making that much money, that doesn't give anybody self-worth because no. here's the thing. You have to strip away everything. If you take away my car, if you take away my house, if you take away my career, if you take away my husband, if you take away my son, I have to be okay just as I am. Doesn't The outside doesn't matter. And that's where I struggle, but that's where I'm closer to. The outside doesn't complete me. And it doesn't matter if you make six figures of seven figures. I know people in my program that are multimillionaires, that are A-list celebrities, that are CEOs, and they are miserable. Yeah. Absolutely miserable. So it doesn't mean anything. And the day that we all realize that and stop playing into that whole narrative, we will have freedom. And I think that's what you and I are trying to do is to be like, whoa, 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 this doesn't matter. Yeah. This matters. Yeah. This human experience and connection. So I've got mm-hmm. last two questions because it's your evening there. <laughs> to the campaign, with everything that you've learned, I ask this everybody, what does being imperfectly perfect mean to you? Um, I think it's being authentically myself, good or bad, right or wrong, willing to voice what I feel at all times, but also take responsibility for my actions. I think it's accountability because before I wanted to wear that facade of perfection and I'm not perfect. Who even knows what perfect means in this world? Everybody else's narrative of perfectionism is so different. So it's not even a real thing. So why am I striving for something that's not even real? So I think the core of me is what I try to show to the world now. And that's when I feel imperfectly perfect. Love it. <laughs> lastly, I think I think that's an amazing way to put it. I, I love everyone's different take on it and how people come. And Dr. Zeus has come up quite a few times as well with some of his saints because it's so profound. But in everything that you've created, you're clearly making, whether it's unbeknown to you, a legacy. Like you are seriously like trailblazing this way, doing this. So very grateful for that. What would you say to anybody that may be at the stage where you were what would you say to your younger self? That kind of question, but to other people. And then lastly, where can people find out more information about you and what's next for you? Oh, geez. Okay, that's such a loaded question. Okay, um, what would I say to my younger self or somebody that's struggling with this, you know, whole using outside things, people especially, that you are enough just as you are. Like you, no one is going to have enough to give you the insatiable hole that you are looking for this perfect person, this white knight, this soulmate does not exist. They are never going to be able to give you what you need. And the person that is your soulmate is yourself. That is what I found. I found myself love. And I'm honestly saying if my husband left me today, I would be upset. I would be devastated, but he would, it wouldn't break me. And I couldn't say that before when I would, go through a breakup or, you know, blow up my life. I thought the world was ending and I couldn't survive. 
And that's not true. I am enough just as I am. And that's what I would tell my younger self with the learning disability, with, you know, the acne, the braces, everything you go through as a younger self and that this too shall pass and feelings don't kill. So those are the important things. And if you're struggling out there and you're listening to me, the, the first thing I say, try to talk to somebody, open your mouth just to one person you trust. Like, I don't know why I can't get out of this relationship. I don't know why I keep doing this. I don't know why this person I keep reaching out to doesn't come back. Why am I going after these unavailable people? Why am I unavailable? You know, those questions. And the second thing I'd be, jump online, go on SLAA, type in SLAA, self-diagnose 40 questions. And they're very easy questions yes or no. If you get five yeses, they say, maybe this is something you could look into. Now for me, I had a very high number. So definitely, you know, if you want to hear about it, just pick up the book. And, you know, if you want to reach me, DM me on Instagram. I try to answer all my DMs because that's where I, I help a lot of people. So it's at the Brianne Davis or go to TikTok. I'm on TikTok at the dot Brianne Davis. And then, you know, if you want to get my book, it's a really fun, gnarly ride of an addict's bottom in in Hollywood. So it's secretlifenovel.com or go to Amazon, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. And then also my Audible is about to be released. So that's really exciting. I had to act out all the worst moments of my life. And that was pure torture. So you'll be able to listen to me like cry and feel emotion and man, that was rough. But next for me, I wrote book two. That's, oh. I'm in rewrites right now for book two. So um, say, are you, you going to give credit to your husband for making you do that course all that time ago? And now you're on your second book. <laughs> yeah. I believe me. I give him credit all the time. He makes me a better person. I mean, I, he literally gets credit for almost everything. He really helped me walk through finding my true self. But yeah, so book two, and then there's a third book. And then my husband was like, actually, there's a fourth book. Like this has to happen too. And I was like, so there's a fourth book. And we just wrote the pilot for the TV show. We have interest for the TV show. So we'll see. Honestly, I'm just showing up wherever I'm supposed to. Every day I ask, you know, just put me where I need to be. Talk to who I need to talk to. I'm just literally flowing and being of service because it really is about being of service. It's not really about me at all. And that, that's why I think, um, I'm getting my strength is it's humility and it's not about me. It's about helping other people. Wow. This has been such a fascinating, like, and just to end it, just, just even there, I just want to say that, This just goes to show you to any of our listeners out there that when people think I can't speak out and share my vulnerability, like look at yourself, look at all these people that I've I've spoken to and you've spoken to, it does not stop you obtaining success or leading a purposeful life. You can still attain those high levels. And I think one of the things that need abolishing a lot of times, I don't know about in, in, in the US, but sometimes when you go for a job application and there's that question, have you suffered or do you suffer from a mental health? Well, that could range from a whole gigantic thing like mild anxiety to anything. And at the end of the day, if you've been to the pits, like a lot of us have, and you've climbed out, it's one of the hardest thing you will ever do. A job in comparison is nothing. 
So nothing. And that's what I say. I do. I have that saying like that people that have gone through hell and come back are my favorite types of people because there's this depth to somebody. There's this willingness to survive and get on the other side and find that peace and serenity. And there was that quote, and I have it in the book where it's like, religious people are afraid of going to hell and spiritual people have already been. And I just love spiritual people and that were willing to say, here's the the worst of the worst I've ever felt, thought, done. And I'm here to help you because yeah. I was there too. Love it, love it. Well, guys, I'm going to be putting all the links to Brianna, so make sure that you click on there. You can find out more information, listen to a podcast, grab that book because it sounds amazing. And until next time, guys, make sure you go to the Imperfectly Perfect podcast via Spotify or iHeartRadio. Make sure to subscribe, like, and share. Until next time, guys, please remember to have those hard conversations because it's the hard conversations that saves lives. To find out more about the Imperfectly Perfect campaign and how you can get involved, simply head to our official website at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org or email us today at info at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org to speak to one of the team. The Imperfectly Perfect campaign is creating awareness and is not a substitute for professional advice. Should you need help, please refer to your nearest crisis number.